are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, Justin here with a quick word before we dive into this week's episode. This particular chat features myself, Daniel, and David as we talk with one of my personal favorite researchers, Mr. Chris Bennett, about Aleister Crowley, monster movies, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, and his book, Libra 420, Cannabis, Magical Herbs, and the Occult. I think you'll all love the hell out of this one. Without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Just to get started here, we've already talked a little bit. You told me you were a monster movie kid. Take us back in time. You know, you're you're reading, building forts, and what monster movies were you into? Well, I was really, I bought Famous Monsters of Filmland by Forrest Ackerman. Like every month I was down there checking the newsstand. But I loved all the classics, you know, like the Boris Karloff, uh, Frankenstein movies, and Bela Lugosi, and both Lon Chaney Sr. and Jr., all that type of stuff I was really into, as well as like Ray Harry Hawson movies Mm. and, and that type of stuff planet of the apes was a big obsession when i was a kid i i, I was planning on taking over the world with apes when, when i grew up when i was a kid i think because my family life was so messed up i just seemed like <laughs> it seemed like a better choice of family or something i don't know <laughs> i wanted to be a monster movie makeup guy i actually had like a makeup kit i'd always win like halloween contests and things like that did a lot of movie makeup stuff when i was a kid so you just kind of fell out of it or no more yeah anything? yeah I mean, that was when I was like, you know, 12 to, you know, 14 or so and just got into other things, you know, smoking weed, I guess, and, uh, <laughs> hanging around with the bad boys. <laughs> yeah, that'll get you into some other shit for real. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose to sort of build off of that question, what led you down the green path, so to speak? Is there a eureka moment you can point to? Well, like I, I started smoking herb when I was like 12, you know, and didn't really, I couldn't really say that was like a eureka moment. I always kind of liked it around 19. 1989, 1990, I had a very powerful religious experience with cannabis that led to me writing all the books I've written and articles and that type of stuff. I guess I could tell you about that. It was a, it was a series of events that kind of led to this religious experience. The first of those was in Canada. There was a big controversy about the Mount Cash Orphanage, which was a Catholic-run orphanage on the east coast of Canada. In the 80s, kids that had been there in the 50s and 60s started saying, hey, I was molested by priests there and abused and stuff and it was the first time anybody ever talked about any of that shit here in Canada to any extent and I was fascinated by it you know I wasn't really brought up with religion my mom was more the horoscope and tea leaves type of person but you know it was always on the periphery just culturally and stuff and I thought gee I thought the Bible was about something completely different but you know so I started reading the Bible and I couldn't make I had at that time I was I grew cannabis and I was really into surfing uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s and I uh, had a job as a night 
night watchman a few nights a week in this fish plant which gave me a lot of time to read at night and i started reading the bible i couldn't really make any sense of it you know and i just kind of stuck it in this night watchman office and forgot about it coinciding with this uh, there was a big controversy uh, regarding logging out where i lived on the west coast of vancouver island in this small fishing tent logging town called Reculet. and they were going to log the last coast low growth rainforest there clacklet sound it was an international uh, protest about this and so i was like oh wow i never even thought about environmentalism or anything like that before my brother was actually the uh, union chairman for the for the logging camp there also coinciding with this a friend of mine taped the first documentary i ever saw that mentioned hemp industrial hemp i said oh no that can't be true and then he showed it to me and i started looking stuff up and i was like whoa there must be something to this you know i started seeing an encyclopedia how it had been used for paper and clothing and food and all these types of things and then also coinciding with this was a gulf war started in iraq and this was uh when saddam hussein was in power i knew that he had been comparing himself to nebuchadnezzar the last king of babylon who overthrew the jews and so one night i was in this fish plant about two or three in the morning you know smoking a joint in the lunchroom and i (laughs) at that time there was no internet so people have you know tv programs all that type of stuff were advertised in newspapers and i'm going through this newspaper and i see this advertisement i think it was by pat robertson and it was revelations 18 the fall of babylon and he's at the pulpit and behind him he's got picture tanks and jets and i'm like oh wow these guys are tying in the book of revelation with the gulf war you know and i don't I remember that i think seeing the omen when i was a kid <laughs> i'd always been kind of uh, obsessed with with the apocalypse i guess getting close to 2002 you know i'd ask the jehovah's witnesses in the fish plan about the revelation and the apocalypse and i thought well i'm going to read the book of revelation right now and I got the book of Revelation at the beginning of the book. John's given the scroll and it tastes as sweet as honey in his mouth. And then he swallows it. It turns bitter in his stomach and he begins to prophesy. And I was like, well, what did he eat? You know, mm-hmm. like what caused that? You know, and I read a little further on and it was talking about billowing clouds of incense with the prayers of the saints and sackcloth. And I was like, whoa, this all sounds pretty trippy. And I got to the <laughs> end of the book of Revelation. Revelation is 22 and it says, on either side of the river of life stood the tree of life bearing 12 manners of fruit and yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation and when i read that i had this like really powerful experience where i felt like light just was like funneling into my body and i started thinking oh this must be what those rastafarian dudes are talking about here with cannabis you know this tree life and i started really tripping out and i called my wife up at the time and she thought i was having some sort of nervous breakdown and started falling her head off on the phone and the next day you know i got up and i was like was there anything to that or was I just tripping, you know? After that, I'd look out and there'd be these like clear-cut mountains all around my house and I'd think, well, somebody's got to say something at least about hemp, you know? And if there's anything to this being the tree of life, then somebody else somewhere else will have had similar experiences, you know? And there'll be some sort of record of this. And I started slowly collecting everything I could find about cannabis's role in in religion. And, And that led to my last 30 years of research. That's where it started. And that was kind of like I would say the pivotal point if I could uh, track the direction of my life down to a moment it was that moment you know that moment decided my next 30 odd years of life up to this day and cannabis is the tree of life and it's not like based on my revelation man it's like you can go look at archaeology and the archaeology that's turning up in the holy land indicates that you know cannabis the Hebrew term for cannabis was cannabis was burned in uh, temples in ancient Israel and uh, particularly burned to 
God's one-time wife, Asherah, who got written out of the Bible, but we know from archaeological evidence and other textual, uh, surviving textual evidence, was at one time paired with Yahweh, uh, the, the, the God of the Bible, as his partner and was written out during the uh, kingdom period. Her cult as well burned uh, cannabis and they recognized it as the tree of life, as her sacred tree of life. And the whole Eden mythology, which was one of the last things written in the Old Testament, is actually a demonization of that relationship and that, and, and that scenario with its forbidden trees and stuff like that. So it's, it's powerful stuff and it takes a lot to kind of lay out and explain, but that's what I've been you know working on for decades now. And I feel pretty confident about the research and uh, much more so since this archaeology has turned up in uh, 2020 showing that cannabis was in fact burnt in ritual settings in a temple in Israel in 2800 years ago. I mean, it's not just that too, because you know, the Phoenicians had it as well. I mean, they even had oh, it yeah. dating back even to Sidon, yeah, you know, yeah, burning absolutely. that for their occult rituals and stuff. It just, it's, it, I'm just curious just to even, what was the research like? Because you, all right, Gulf War, so that's 1990. I was 10, so when it wasn't true, Transformers and eat the cat. I remember that we didn't have the internet. So yeah. How the hell did you go about actually researching this stuff? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when I was living in a really small town as well, uh, one thing that happened was there was a uh, guy that was the first guy to import hemp clothing into North America in Vancouver, near where I live. His name was Alex Shami. He was a Chinese businessman. And I went into his office one day and there was a picture of a hippie in a pot patch and it said Church of the Universe tree of life sacrament and i was like holy shit those hey, dudes know you know who are they and he gave me their number and i called them up and i said hey man cannabis is the tree of life they're like yeah bro cannabis is the tree of life and they sent me a little booklet by uh, uh jeff brown from the ethiopian zion coptic church marijuana in the bible he'd been doing similar things to me collecting little bits of information you know documentation about cannabis's role in religion you know and one of the first things that we discovered in this search is that in the 1930s this polish anthropologist and etymologist known uh, as sula bennett no relation she had said that there were these hebrew terms canna and cannabossum that were actually references to cannabis that had been mistranslated as calamus when the hebrew texts were translated into greek and then later Later, these mistranslations followed into the Latin translations, and they were translated as calamus, and this was incorrect. And she showed Maybe uh, by following the modern term back that this was actually a reference to cannabis, you know? That was like a, a major piece of the puzzle. But uh, as, our, as your friend said there, not just like biblical stuff by any means, you know, and that's not, that's not the beginning. Cannabis use, the ritual use of cannabis based on archaeological evidence can be traced back probably like 52, 5,500 years ago. And this was uh, amongst Indo-European tribes who burned it in funerary rituals, rituals for the dead. Now, this was a practice that was uh, continued on with Indo-European tribes. We know from a variety of archaeological finds up until like 5680 so continued on for thousands of years you know so the, the ritual use of cannabis predates any known religion and religion in many ways could be seen to grow have grown out of the ritual use of cannabis and likely other antheogenic substances as well i'm curious to how the ancient called you know all right let's take it because uh, all right here we go off the deep end you know the crystal skull the elongated skulls yeah larger brains and so how it's been posited that the anunnaki and stuff had bigger brains and then of course we have the giant brains were bigger and so they could think on a different wavelength so if that perhaps we were using cannabis just the same way we use music however back then since they were used at the same time to actually hit your brain into that certain wavelength that you can actually comprehend things and unlock 
things that unfortunately we've forgotten now. We know the ritual, we just forgot the why. I'm yeah. just kind of curious as the correlation. I, 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 I love do. hearing about things like this because and it th- just these things pop up every now and then you'll leave i mean hell even modern music burzum varg said the way he does his music he doesn't do it to be flashy or anything he does it to get you into a trance that's the origins of music as well you know it is combined with this you know i think uh, one of the greatest contributions terence mckenna gave the psychedelic studies is his idea of the uh, stoned ape theory and he based his stoned ape theory largely on the work of a psychologist known as julian james who wrote a book, uh, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And James's theory was that agent man didn't think in the same way that we think, that thinking was an evolutionary development. And speaking and thinking take place in different areas of the brain even, you know. James thought that thinking was something that kicked in, you know, five, six, seven thousand years ago and would kick in at times of stress or upheaval and would advise you and say, okay, this is what you should do. And you'd hear the voice as, as something coming outside of you, much like a schizophrenic experience is thought, right? And that, so did you hear that? What did it say? Oh, it says we should do this, you know? And so Ken expanded upon this idea by suggesting that the use of psychoactive substances created a fire in the brain that created this same sort of situation that, say, a fever might create or, or moments of stress or, or intense darkness or things like that, and would create a bit of a dialogue inside the head, you know. And that uh, and there's traces of this in language, like genius comes from the same root as genie and basically means, you know, guardian angel, enthusiasm has elements of possession in it. You know, the ancient Greeks, they'd speak about the muses for creativity. And it was like something that was delivered and put into you rather than rather than part of your regular consciousness. Right. And so that over generations this became part of the human experience and started you know through through evolution started everybody started adopting it now we all think and so we forget about this time frame where thinking originated right you know that seems to me to be likely the case here with cannabis based on a lot of the archaeological evidence that we're finding in the aging world right now and there's been some really interesting archaeological finds and you know and i don't want to like be biblical eccentric here because it's by like by no means is this limited to the bible in fact the term cannabosum was likely adopted from the indo-europeans who referred to cannabis as canna indo-european language is the root language for many many languages all french german english sanskrit agent persian Yvestan language you know one of the one of the root word for cannabis canna that's from the oldest form of rootstock for words proto-indo-european so even before the indo-european language developed and all these other languages split off from it right and you can trace this through the different words from cannabis and show they all originate through or most of them originate through this term kana that was the original indo-european term and was spread around the ancient world by nomadic tribes like the Scythians and other Indo-European tribes. So it's all over the place. And we have, you know, strong archaeological and etymological evidence that shows that cannabis has been used in ancient Hinduism, you know, going back to the Vedic literature, ancient Zoroastrianism, Taoism in China, in Buddhism, there's references to cannabis, ritual use, all sorts of ancient religions where we can actually document this ritual role for cannabis. David Flynn often refers to that we are now in the seventh cycle of eons. So like every 25,000 years, the eon resets itself and, you know, civilization collapses and the survivors have to rebuild and we rebuild on the top of what's already been done. That's why Saksai Wamu has three different 
foundational stones dating back from the Cyclopean with the No More, and then you go out there now, and you know, or then you can see that where the other emperors had actually built the stones on top of it. And there's clearly three different cultures. So I'm just curious to think that you know we still pick up the weed. We got the the do it, but we forgot the why. It's just curious to see that another. Like I said, it's kind of cheerfully nihilistic to think that you know, you know I, I think that when you take a look at the ritual role of cannabis in the ancient world there's a repeating pattern of you know shamanic uh, plant-based origins of the different religions and then they become means of law and control and there's little desire for continued shamanic <laughs> exploits in that situation it's more about what you do how much you pay what you can't do and, and things like that and i think that is is largely why it fell out of out of use in, in the western world is like the rise of you know judaism in the east uh, we can see the uh, disappearance of these cannabosum references with prophets like jeremiah in a time period when they're suppressing the goddess and a lot of the the prophets kind of go silent after that period and uh, in christianity with the rise of the roman catholic church and the inception of the dark ages or what's known as the dark ages that they're they, they moved away from like what the gnostics and other early christian groups were doing which was clearly entheogenic you know you take a look at gnostic documents gnostic christian documents from the first few centuries ad and there's clear evidence that they were using psychoactive substances in rituals and things like that right and all this fell by the wayside you you know and it's like and then it was continually suppressed you know we see the medieval period with the suppression of the witches of alchemy and ritual magic and this continued on into the new world catholics came across natives using magic mushrooms and peyote or iboga in africa and all of this was condemned as a satanic behavior and in fact there's some biblical basis for this because everywhere you see the term sorcery say in the book of revelation it's a translation of this greek term pharmakia yeah. pharmakia it's where we the root word for pharmacy, but it actually makes reference to the ritual use of plants, which was was considered highly demonic and demonic possession even. And uh, this is carried through into to modern Christianity. I think in many ways the modern drug war has its roots in Christians versus the devil's weed and and that mentality. Chris, you touched on this a few minutes ago. I want to back up before we get too far away from it. There's plenty of work previous to yours that point to other substances as the tree of life, mushroom, for example. Yeah. Uh, what is the nugget of information that pointed you in the direction of cannabis initially? We now know that the biblical God, Yahweh, through long periods of ancient Hebrew history, was coupled with this goddess, this Canaanite goddess, Asherah. And William M. Bowden, a botanist, wrote about her cult using cannabis as well as an anointing oil and incense, the same way the Jews used it. We have in the story, like there's these references to Cana and Cannabossum that appear in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a reference in Exodus 30, 23, where God commands Moses to make a holy anointing oil with about six pounds of cannabis, Cannabossum, uh, mixed with myrrh and cinnamon into about a gallon and a half of olive oil. And every time he speaks to the Lord, he's to put this oil on his body, and your skin's a big organ, and THC's fatty soluble can actually pass through your skin. But he'd also burn some of this on the altar of incense in a, in a space that was referred to as the tent of the meeting, which was an enclosed, you know, a hot box tent. And then we, we see uh, other references in Ezekiel where it's described as an item of trade coming in. So this is where we can see how it came in through these Indo-European trade routes. In Isaiah, Isaiah, God complains he has not brought him any cannabosum, but he's burdened him with his sins. So it's pretty clear that, you know, the voice of God kind of went silent when that wasn't burned in the temple. And there's another scene uh -huh. in, in Isaiah where he describes one of the seraphim flying unto me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs 
from off the altar and he held it to my lips and lo my iniquity was taken away and my sins purged so this very thing that god in the old testament there in the book of isaiah says that he didn't get and but he's been burdened with his sins it's actually relieved sins once you take a big hit of it he holds up the tongs like a pair of hot knives to isaiah's mouth and isaiah's sins are taken away and he begins to prophesize by the time of jeremiah the references turn sour and jeremiah says what do i care for your canna from a distant land your incense of sheba does not please me and so it's quite thoroughly condemned and later on in I, uh, I, uh, uh, jeremiah it's made pretty clear this is you know got to do with the goddess and stuff because he condemns the unholy daughters of israel for burning incense to the queen of heaven and then when he attacks them for it they say of course we do as did our kings before us like solomon who was accused of burning incense on high to the queen of heaven now when it was just an etymological theory it was kind of left at that you know it's a matter of debate and there's been other suggestions for what this term cannabosa means you know a calamus as i mentioned but also lemongrass a type of cinnamon other things have been suggested but in 2020 there was the release of a, a, an academic paper by some archaeologists, and they pointed to a temple in Arad, Jerusalem, from the 8th century BCE, and they found a uh, broom closet-sized temple space with two altars, one altar that had frankincense burnt on it, and they tested the residues of these substances, and the other altar had uh, cannabis on it. showed that these were actually referenced, you know, so that, that there was actually cannabis burnt at this temple site. Now, what's interesting about Arad, Jerusalem, is it's also a site that's known for its indications of the combined worship of Yahweh and his Asherah, his wife Asherah. This kind of confirms these Canabossum references because it fits seamlessly with the story that they tell, right? And Asherah, we do know, we found numbers of archaeological figurines and also inscriptions that refer to Yahweh and his Asherah and show them both together. So we know that they were coupled together and this is one of the places where these, these types of archaeological finds have taken place in the same temple. So it's pretty clear and many depictions of Asherah have what's referred to by archaeologists and writers on aging Canaan as her tree of life. It shows a, a cannabis-sized plant with goats on either side of it chewing it. And this is a repetitive throughout it. You know, I've, I've reproduced a lot of these images in my books and stuff and gone over this in detail. Also in lectures you can find on YouTube and stuff, right? As well, anthropologists and archaeologists writing about this are quite convinced that the whole Eden mythology, which was written later than most of the books in the Old Testament, but placed at the front. You got to remember this stuff, you know, didn't come all at once. There was numbers of different groups and authors that put the books that make up the Old Testament together. And so what we have is the final edition that came out. And those who did the final edition were quite stringent monotheists, where it was all about the worship of one God, Yahweh, right? So all this other stuff is pushed in the background. But there are references in the Old Testament itself, the books of Kings and Chronicles, about the destruction of the Asherah temples, about the Asherah being inside the main temple itself, along with a brazen serpent that Moses made. The brazen serpent itself was destroyed in the book of Numbers. It, it describes Moses making it, but later on during the reforms in, in Kings, it's destroyed because the people of Israel were burning incense to it. And so this is all kind of symbolic of a lot of this stuff that's in the Eden mythology, the Asherah, the goddess who's mortalized as Eve, the sacred trees, uh, and, and the serpent and all that type of stuff right within the inner temple. Now, not all archaeologists and anthropologists agree, but this is, you know, serious matter of debate. 
a lot of people are very attached to this like a monotheistic ideal of the Old Testament, you know, and so you kind of are in a situation when you're doing things like archaeology in the Holy Land where there's a real desire to maintain the status quo view mm-hmm. of the Old Testament books. There's a whole religion's based about it. Many of these people doing the archaeological work are, are very religious Jewish people, right? And so this is a real challenge to it. And so they say all these figurines or they try to write them off as different reasons, as just household objects and things like that. Uh, numbers of books written about Asherah and her role in the ancient East. It's becoming increasingly clear that, they, you know, they're like, you know, Christians in denial of dinosaurs, <laughs> you know, because... <laughs> But the, the, the world's only supposed to be 6,000 years old. It's just the reality of the overwhelming amount of archaeological evidence indicates that it was polytheistic. More than one deity was worshipped and that God, through long periods of history, had a wife. And this wife was mortalized as Eve and the forbidden fruits. And so that's my basis for the biblical tree of life because it was wound up with Asherah and her cult, which used cannabis, which we know now from both the etymological evidence regarding cannabosum and the archaeological evidence out of Arad, Jerusalem. So were you self-published? My publisher's trying day in Oregon there for my last two books. I've got four books out. I'm just working on my fifth book right now. My first book came out in 1995, Green Gold, The Tree of Life, Marijuana and Magic and Religion. That was published by Access Unlimited. I did self-publish my book, Sex, Drugs, Violence in the Bible, after a bigger publisher oh, had me wait that's for that's like... Not, sounds like a barn burner. Eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But then my last two books and my third, my, my fifth book will be published by trying day as well but uh, you know i've written you know not just about biblical cannabis i've written about it all over the world my book cannabis and the soma solution goes into great detail about the vedic sacrament soma and the avestan sacrament haoma and there's archaeological evidence there as well indicating you know there's a lot of debate about what soma was but there's there's a lot of emerging archaeological evidence that really uh, strengthens the case for cannabis and it's becoming an increasingly popular candidate in the mainstream you know with it not so much in the psychedelic community but amongst mainstream anthropologists and historians it's becoming increasingly popular as a candidate due to the archaeological and etymological evidence for that you know which was a whole other major agent world sacrament right while we're on the subject of your books, I wanted to ask you, since they're so extensive, like Lieber, I have Libra 420 right here, and it's a doorstopper. Yep. How do you determine, how do you vet out information? I'm going to include this in the book. I'm not going to include this. What's your process for research, I guess I should say? Well, you know, I'm definitely looking for, you know, evidence to make my case, right? You know, mm-hmm. I try to, like, be clear on you know, what's a theory and what's an established fact. You know what I mean? There's, right. there's a big difference there, right? So if it's, you know, if it's not, like if there's debate about it, I go into what the debate is, what I know about the, the discussion and the case, why I think that there's more of a case for cannabis, you know, and then let the kind of the reader decide. But yeah, I don't know. You know, I try to find good sources, right? Historical, you know, best is like, you know, historical documents. And the nice thing about cannabis, it's been with humanity for a very long time. There's actual, you know, and, and, and some of the names are, you know, it's, it's still, still, still the same in different languages for cannabis. So I tried to go back to ancient documents as much as I can and find 
the actual references to it, you know, and in the Zoroastrian literature, it appears as banga or mang is another word that they use. And there's, you know, this is uh, well recognized that these are references to cannabis in, you know, Greek and Latin, you know, you find the terms uh, cannabis even, you know, very similar to, to, to the way we spell it. Those type of things are very strong as far as like linguistic and etymological evidence. There's a little debate about it. And then even better is archaeological evidence. And there's been a lot of really cool archaeological evidence regarding cannabis that documents its ritual use. And this is the difference between claims made about things like mushrooms, say in the ancient world. It's all based on, say, a tree looks like a mushroom, so therefore they were eating mushrooms. But there's never anything like a clear linguistic reference or identification uh, uh, that is used or archaeological evidence, you know, and that'd be tough to do with mushrooms, but not, not necessarily impossible. And perhaps as we you know, like a lot of uh, uh, developments have taken place in analyzing agent materials and stuff like that. And it may reveal reveal more stuff, but things like cannabis, mandrake, opium, henbane, all these things were known in the agent world. We know because they wrote about it and they identified them. You know what I mean? So they're mm-hmm. less debatable than some of these theories out there. And I, I, and that's one of the things I like about being focused on cannabis is I'm not left to speculation nearly as much uh, as a lot of these other uh, uh, researchers are. Sorry if I'm jumping around here, Chris, but I'm aware of this story. Uh, my friends here may not, and our listeners may not, but uh, you have a insane synchronicity tale involving the OTO, the number 777, and Aleister Crowley. I just yeah, yeah. break that down <laughs> yeah, for you. Yeah, very interesting. Crazy, <laughs> I that's that's a crazy story, yeah. You know, like, when I first, like, I, when I when I had my initial religious experience, you know, with the Bible and the book of Revelation, for a while there, I was kind of Christian. I thought, oh, wow, you know, cannabis is the tree of life, you know, and I was involved with Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church, writing those guys, and they're very, they're like fundamentalist Christians that smoke weed. And I was collecting, like, you know, quotes and things like that for this book, Green Gold, The Tree of Life, Marijuana, Magic, and Religion. And I had known of Aleister Crowley, you know, in the periphery, but I'd always kind of considered him a satanic figure a, a devil worshiper or something like that i didn't really know a lot about him but i had by this time collected a lot of cool quotes you know stuff from helena blavatsky and uh, gurdjieff and other occultists who made reference to hashish and and things in their writing and i thought well I, I should probably try and find a quote from this guy just so i have a quote in my in my book you know one day i was at a you know right around this time i was at a, a garage sale and somebody had a few Aleister crowley books there and i picked them up and one of them was magic and theory and practice and i i started reading it he's mentioned the nice templar by this time i'd already connected the assassins with the templars you know and had some speculation about their use of cannabis and was looking for material. And I was like, oh, he must have known about this. And I also knew about this guy from the, the 15th century, Francois Rabelais, who was a monk and bachelor of medicine and a practitioner of alchemy. And he appears in a number of cannabis history books because he incorporated cannabis into his parody of Church and State, A Tale of Two Giants, uh, called Gargantuan Pantagruel. And he referred to it as the Herb Pantagruelian. But he used fragments from a number of agent chroniclers ancient Greek historians and stuff like that, like Pliny and, and uh, other, others that were clear references to the botanical description of cannabis. And he kind of incorporated it into his description of this herb pantagruelian. So people knew he was making reference to cannabis. And so I was aware of this guy and I'd got his book and I'd read it. In the Gargantuan Pantagruel, there's an abbey named Thelema and the law of the abbey of Thelema was do as thou wilt. And so I see, I'm reading Crowley and I see, 
Thelema and do as thou wilt. He goes, oh, wow, he must have known about Rabelais, right? And so I was right into it. And I was reading along in, in magical theory and practice. And then I got about halfway through it. And then he makes a reference to child sacrifice. And he said, oh, to do this, you must sacrifice a male child. And I've done this myself 150 times in the last year. And I was like, oh, my God, what have I been reading? It's, it's goddamn <laughs> demonic. And I put the book down. I stopped reading it. And then I went to Victoria, to a friend of mine's house. And this is like, say, 1992 or three. And he had a uh, copy of uh, Gnosis magazine. And it was a special issue on psychedelics. And they had uh, Alan Stray's artwork on the front. And I was like, oh, this looks cool. I pick it up. And in the letter section, there was a letter, child sacrifice. And it was somebody lambasting him for doing an article on Crowley because of this exact reference, which I was pondering over. And they explained it as, oh, he's making a puckish reference to sexual magic. He's actually talking about semen and not sacrificing children. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird, but I can live with that, you know? <laughs> and so I decided I'd keep looking for a reference from Crowley, for a good hashish reference, you know? And I, I went to this bookstore and I saw this new book I hadn't seen before called Lieber Alec. And I looked in the back under hashish and then uh, hemp and I saw hashish. There was like six pages. And I started reading it and I just could not make heads or tails of it, you know, and so I stuck it back on the shelf. I went to another bookstore and I got some secondhand books. And one of these was the 10th Mandela of the Rig Veda, which I ended up using years later for my book on Soma. And a copy of Ram Dass's Be Here Now, which originally when it came out was $3.33. And when I went up to go pay the lady at the counter, she pointed out this $3.33 thing and we kind of laughed about it. And then when my change came up from all my books, it was $7.77. And I, I, was, I, I thought, oh, that's cool. It's like seven spears on a pot leaf. And she'd already brought the 333. And we all thought that was kind of neat. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go get that book, Liberal Leaf, that I looked at. And if I read it a few times, maybe I'll understand it. Because that's what I had to do with Rabelais as well. He writes in a similar esoteric manner that you got to kind of read over and uh, work on the symbolism to kind of understand. And so I get the book and then I open it up. And I see it's from the great and wild beast, 666, to his magical son, 777. I'm like, wow, that's fucking trippy, you know? <laughs> and I saw it was, like, written for a guy that lived in Vancouver. And that's where I was raised, you know, this uh, guy. And they'd had a fallen out. But I didn't really make too much of it then. And then years later, right around, you know, I kind of got more focused on the ancient world. And my, my next two books was the biblical one and the one on Soma. So I was writing more about the ancient world than, than any occult stuff. But I'd always kind of keep an ear, you know, to the ground on this stuff when I saw stuff and so I found out you know that he this this guy Charles Stansfield Jones lived in North Vancouver and I was like whoa that's a part of Vancouver I'm from that's cool and then I found out he lived in deep Cobra North Vancouver and I was like well that's weird man that's like a square mile area that I'm from you know didn't make much of it still and then one day about uh, 2016, I was just started to work on Libra 420 and I was with this uh, girl I knew and she was saying how she was interested in ghosts. And I said, oh, when I was a kid, I thought I saw the same ghost twice on my street, you know, and I, I told her the stories. And for some reason, it made me think about all this Charles Stansfeld Jones stuff again. And so in the references, it said he had lived in a, a place called Tall Timbers in Deep Cove. And I was looking up at old maps, trying to find this location. And then I got to this Deep Cove Historical Society page, and there was a letter from a guy who had been his uh, foster son in the 40s. And he said, I lived on a house called Tall Timbers on Caledonia Avenue. And I go, holy fuck, that was my street. Oh, and shit. I called the guy up. 
and he lived like three houses down the street from me, right? In the 90s, when the stuff with the 777 happened, I kept track of some of the, the, the coincidences that happened. One of them was I got a check that allowed me to publish my book, uh, Green Gold, uh, pay for some artwork and things like that that I would had done. And the check number was 0777333308. You know, the exact numbers that had. And so I photocopied that. I told all my friends, you know. So I documented that from way back then. And then it turned out the guy, like, lived, like, literally three doors down the street. And I'd met his widow when I was a kid. I had been uh, pointing her house out to my friend that lived across the street. And I said, a witch lives here. And his mom actually took me to the house to meet her to show me she was just a nice old lady, but she was a witch. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> and somehow I, I kind of click into it, you know? And so uh, a big part of like, you know, Crowley and Prater Acton, they did a lot of cannabis together. One of the first accounts uh, on the OTO record from Prater Acton is him doing cannabis in 1910. And uh, then in 1918, on, on uh, April 20th, there's a whole uh, diary entry from Crowley about doing hashish with Akkad again on April 20th, 20, uh, 1918, you know. And my book, Libra 420, came out in uh, 2018 on April 20th, 100 years later, you know. And other references as well. And plus, he wrote this esoteric essay in Libra Alif called The Herbo Sanctissimo Arimaco, The Most Holy Grass of the Arabs. Uh, which is full of esoteric lore about cannabis, which I'm sure nobody really got the gist of until I'd taken a look at it and, and, and it found about found out about it. And right before he goes into this uh, De Herbo Sanctimus Arabical, which also appears in the, uh, the Book of Thoth, his famous Book of Tarot, he has an anagram, Uncle Frabius Nassier, and you rearrange the letters, it's Francois Rabelais, clearly making a reference to Rabelais and cannabis and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that's my, my weird, weird-ass Crowley story, you know? I was working on a book about Crowley and hashish, and I published a couple of articles. I have a article online about Crowley and Rabelais and cannabis and then another one about uh, Richard Wagner and hashish. Richard Wagner is a big influence on the OTO. His um, opera Parsifal is, you know, key literature for Order Templar Orientis for their Gnostic Mass and stuff like that. According to one of his 19th century autobiographers, the guy responsible for translating a lot of his work into English, uh, Wagner w was uh, high on hashish when he came up with Parsifal. He'd been <laughs> introduced it by uh, uh, Schopenhauer, <laughs> who uh, recommended it for his depression and stuff. And uh, so it's pretty fascinating. It's a great article. It's I have a good medicine. So it seems to be pretty thoroughly through it, you know. That story gets me every time. In addition to your books, you just mentioned that you also write some articles, and I've read a, a good many of them. I wanted to ask you specifically about, it's funny because Daniel mentioned it when he got in here, so that's just kind of weird, uh, your article, Hashish and the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Pascal Beverly Randolph, I wanted to just ask you about that guy and kind of give us a breakdown on him and his influence on the Brotherhood. Yeah, well, he's one of my, you know, I, I think he's one of the most fascinating figures in cannabis history. He lived from 1825 to 1875, and he was an African-American <laughs> uh, man and had a native wife. His first wife was a native wife named Mary Jane, and they uh, traveled all around. America, she was uh, peddling, uh, peddling cannabis medicines. 
<laughs> and he had gone over to Europe and got involved with Rosicrucians in Europe um, and a bunch of occultists there that were experimenting with uh, hashish, such as uh, Louis Alphonse Cahagnay. And they've been particularly using cannabis with uh, uh, magic mirrors, along with other drugs such as opium and mandrake, henbane, things like that. And, you know, interesting cannabis and magic mirrors, that has a long history itself going back to 16th century grimoires. He thought that, you know, he, he, he thought he'd had his most spiritual experiences under the influence of hashish and he marketed he was the, the largest uh, importer of hashish for a period of time during say the civil war era and was recommending it for all sorts of medical reasons as well as for spiritual reasons as well and a lot, lot of his uh, occult knowledge he was very into sexual magic there's still books on uh, sexual magic in print that uh are, are attributed to uh, uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph, were a big influence on what led to the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. And this was also a big influence on the later on the OTO when it came around as well. I wanted to ask you as well, I know you mentioned the, the weed experience that you had early on, but since that time, have you ever had a experience that you would classify as supernatural or paranormal other than that? Oh, you know, like I've definitely had powerful experiences with, with psychedelics, you know, like out of body, it became a star in space one time, you know, and I did a pretty fascinating experience experiment in the 90s with group consciousness and mushrooms with 12 people that that had a pretty interesting result what i did then is i got uh, 12 friends of mine it's my parrot in the background sorry it's okay it's <laughs> i'm okay. enjoying it uh, i had got 12 friends together that were into consciousness and psychedelics on a full moon my my 34th birthday i think this was uh 1990 six or something like that i told them what we were going to do ahead of time and then and then i got them all to agree to it you know and so what we did is we uh i blessed some mushrooms we took the mushrooms and they formed a circle around me and i took them through a series of exercises to kind of get rid of nervous energy they all looked at me in the center and we'd jump up and down for a minute we'd chatter our teeth for a minute and they were never to look from side to side and then at the peak of all this I did an invocation based on the Thunder, Perfect Mind, a Gnostic text, which is uh, seeming to become increasingly popular. People are trying to tie this Gnostic text in with Dr. John Dee as well. But anyways, I used it for this invocation. And after, and I picked uh, two questions from the hat. And what I did is when I picked a question is I touched one person and that person was to say one word. And then the next person was to follow with a word and that would go right around the circle. And I sat in the, sec the middle of the circle and I just wrote it all down. And it was as fast as somebody could speak, you know. Fortunately, I don't have the uh, the transmissions here, but they were like full paragraph answers to the questions that were had proper sentence structure and and, and, and were were directed at as answers to the question in a, a really profound way that nobody said because pe the guys there only had one twelfth of uh, of the information. Uh, if I was on my computer, I'd. I'm just on my phone right now. I, I dig up the answers for you and, and give you an example of them. But uh, really, really interesting results. You mentioned, and I think it was in your interview with Greg, that some people who study or practice the occult, even to this day, sort of scoff at the use of cannabis in ritual. What is uh, the common misconception you would say about the use of cannabis? Well, you know, you can take a look at most, you know, modern witches. They don't like uh, any drugs, but it's like witchcraft. Itself, you know, <laughs> in the uh, medieval, it's pretty clear that things like they're using some pretty powerful nightshades and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's like some people think that, yeah, that, that, that there's no role for these things. It's like hard to even find 
even when you find like references to them that are clear references and you know they're 16th century grimoires like it's called uh i've been on the road for a while um the book of, of, of spirits and magic the wise man's grimoire i think is one. Oh man the main one i'm just oh man i, I feel terrible i just can't, I can't but it's like four, three or four grimoires where they have specific references to cannabis is used for magic mirrors even when they you know they'll just they won't even go into detail about it they just kind of like pass it by like that doesn't mean anything and here we have drugs used in magic they don't even they don't even touch on it in the book they don't not even a footnote or or, or follow-up you know yeah i have um, to agree with you because that has i mean that has been documented yeah for, for ages yeah, is that, i mean yeah, as you say the with one. the sorcery and the pharmacia i mean this has been going on for yeah, yeah, the native americans use it in their healing rituals they use so i mean i agree with you on that is you know for the modern the modernist who are yeah. too good for it you know they just completely disregard it well that just shows their the ineptitude of it right there because yeah, it has yeah, been around absolutely. forever now whether you use it or not doesn't matter you still have to recognize that it was there absolutely absolutely you know and i think you know like the, the, the role it played in saying you know with crowley even gets played down you know like you can read whole lot of biographies on Crowley and they barely mention it but you know Crowley's first experience of samadhi that uh, oneness with the universe lots of people have written about it but few people mention that in his diary notes he clearly refers to taking hashish and Crowley oh, himself yeah. downplayed this you know he, he, he mentioned his experience of samadhi many times in public writings, but never ever mentioned as hashish. It wasn't until his 1907 diaries came out that it was clearly referred to in his diary notes that he'd taken hashish on the, on the date of his of his uh, uh, samadhi experience. Some of those notes about that, I mean, I remember that was common. That, yeah, as you say, I mean, it, he never really he downplayed it a lot, but yeah, it was there. It was present. I mean, all the way up even to the Babylon working, it was there. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, Jack Parsons as well. You know, he. Sidebar, Chris, what is what is your preferred method of smoking? Uh, mostly I vaporize with a volcano vaporizer. For those of us who don't do this, what is that? Because that just sounds like the most gnarly 80s thing I could ever like. Yeah, um, volcano well, uh, the, the volcano is a uh, German-made vaporizer. They're quite expensive, probably 800 bucks or something like that. And it uh, you put cannabis in a cylinder with screens on either end of it, and then you attach a big a turkey bag for cooking a turkey into it onto this cylinder and it uh, blows hot air through the cannabis and it melts all the resin and turns it into a vapor without burning anything there's no flame right and so it creates this vapor uh, a bag full of uh, cannabis vapor and then you puff that instead of smoking and so you don't get any of the carbon that you'd get from smoking so it's a lot easier on your body and your lungs and stuff like that because smoking anything's not good for your lungs, right? It also keeps all the cannabis there because it all goes into a bag when you smoke a joint, it's all burning off and going all over the place, right? But I still smoke joints, you know what I mean? If I'm out and a joint's passed around or something like that. Well, not now because of COVID, but I'll I'll smoke a joint or if I've got some hash, I'll usually smoke that in a pipe or something like that. But, you know, nine out of 10 times when I'm consuming cannabis, it's with a volcano vaporizer. Yeah, Justin, you need to put like some Rammstein riffs or something in the background. <laughs> yeah. What are you explaining that company? Leave it to a freaking German to come up with some idea like that. That's freaking yeah, awesome. Yeah, it was originally invented for medical patients, right? Of course kind of it was. Device. It really is a good way to consume cannabis. It, it, it gets my recommendation every I time. Well, it's like, I can't feel my legs. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. Hold on just a 
I said we're going to keep you in for an hour this time. So I guess yep. to wrap up here, what's on the horizon for you? What's coming up? Working on anything? Right now, you know, I just got kind of burned out, man. It's like taking a break from, you know, I'm, I'm actually cruising around in a van and I was a surfer in the 80s and 90s. I'm out, been out hanging out at surf breaks, trying to get back into surfing after 20 years not surfing. But uh, I'll be landing in, I got a new house on the east coast of uh, Canada and Nova Scotia. I'll be going there in April. I have a book that already being sold, even though I haven't written it, called The Lost Sacrament. And it's about some of this new archaeology uh, regarding cannabis. And I'll, I'll get that together. And then I'll probably get back to work on this book about Crowley and uh, the Thelemic kind of scene and, 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 and the profound role cannabis and other drugs have, have played in that. I'll focus mostly on cannabis and peyote on that. Although there's, you know, lots of references to opium and, I mean, heroin and cocaine and stuff. But uh, I don't think those were very beneficial to the whole uh, occult thing in the same way that the cannabis and the peyote were. And we can see that influence on a, a lot of uh, thelemic material. Where can we find you? Like your books and stuff. You haven't told anybody where to find you. Where are you at? Um, other than in a van. Well, I, I've got a, a blog uh, over at Cannabis Culture. If you search my name, you know, Chris Bennett and Cannabis, you'll get a ton of articles and things like that my books are on amazon uh, i've also got like some documentaries i've made on youtube you can find those again just by searching my name and cannabis and lots of interviews and stuff like that i got a facebook account i put a lot of stuff through that uh instagram less so but i do post some stuff on there but yeah i would just search my name on google or google books or something like that and, and you'll get lots of materials two n's and two t's people that's right yeah <laughs> all right chris it's been a pleasure man Next time. Okay, take care. All right, you have a great day. Thank you, you man. Well. It was right. nice meeting you. You as well, man. <laughs> Cheers. Take care. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.